0: Hey everybody, we are back this week with a brand new episode of Radio Motherboard. I'm Ankita Rao. This week we have an exciting episode. Our writer Becky Ferreira, who you might know from her amazing space coverage, is talking to sci-fi writer Anna Lee Newitz. Anna Lee, who is also an editor at Ars Technica, wrote a new book called Autonomous. By the way, this interview was done remotely, so the sound quality isn't perfect but we think the content
2: more than makes up for it. I'll let Becky take it from here. So I'm really happy to have uh, Annalee Newitz on today. Um, She is the author of the new uh, sci-fi novel Autonomous, uh, which is an extended globetrotting chase scene set in 2144. Um, So thank you so much for coming on, Annalie. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I just wanted to start by kind of giving our listeners an idea of like the peril viewpoints that this novel goes over. Um, It's told from the perspective of Jack, a pharmaceutical riff on Robin Hood, who kind of reverse engineers patented designer drugs for wider public consumption. And then on the other end, it's told by Paladin, the uh, robot agent sent to track her down along with a human companion. So I just wanted to start it because like Paladin is this really memorable character, and I had read that she slash he was kind of the germinal character of this book, and we'll get into that kind of distinction later. But um, I wanted to ask if you could give a little bit more background on what inspired that initial character and how you ended up building the whole of this novel around that.
1: The inspiration for Paladin was actually... A story I had been a, a nonfiction a journalism piece that I had been working on where I was visiting uh, labs where they were using um, enormous actuators to actually crush pieces of cement. Um, that's a whole other story. <laughs> uh, but you know i'm I'm always I'm always deeply impressed by um, really large robotic machines, and I kept thinking. Uh, as I walked home after, after seeing this, you know, what would it be like to have one of those actuators be part of your body? And like, what kind of consciousness would you have? And that was when this image came to me, which is uh, the first scene where we meet Paladin, where Paladin is sort of struggling to climb uh, a sandy dune and sand has gotten into his actuators and he's kind of grumpy and his, his actuators are aching. Um, and that was kind of where I started, was thinking about um, just how Paladin's body would feel, what it would feel like to inhabit that body. And then later I started thinking also about the psychology of what it would be like to have a robot brain.
2: That's fascinating. So it really was more of the physical connection to the, uh, the infrastructure and the machinery um, that, that
1: began it. Yeah, I mean, and, and like a lot of uh, fans of technology, I mean, I grew up with stories about giant robots and small robots. Um, and, uh, and so I've always been kind of robot identified. I was always like the kid who identified with R2-D2 and Star Wars and stuff like that. So um, so it's kind of a natural fit for me.
2: And so when you were developing more of uh, his character, um, wh- how did the physicality of that sort of uh, lend itself to the larger psychological stuff that um, Paladin goes through during this
1: arc? Paladin's consciousness is, um, really just kind of coming online. We, we catch up with Paladin when, um, he's, uh, in, in, in the first half of the book, he's he, and then he later becomes a she or she becomes a she. Um, and of course, many people have asked me maybe if I should just call Paladin they, so you can pick your own pronoun. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Paladin doesn't care as Paladin actually says at various points in the book. Um, so Paladin, uh, starts out, uh, you know, basically as a brand new just born robot. And so the first things that Paladin, you know, experiences are physical pain, but quickly that evolves into an understanding of emotional pain and also connection to other creatures, which is why it's so important that Paladin forms this relationship with Elias, um, her partner. And I think that um, for me, the most interesting part of thinking about that and thinking about Paladin's growing emotional awareness was Imagining what it would be like to know that you were feeling things and wanting things that someone else had programmed into you because she's got all these programs running in her brain that she can't access because she doesn't have root access on her brain. So um, she can't download new programs or change the programs that she's running. Uh, but all the while she knows that they're there and she has to try to figure out which parts of my feelings are me, which parts are things that my that the company that owns me put in there. Um, and it to me, that became a really interesting uh, idea to think about is what happens when you're kind of you're kind of enslaved at the mental level. And, and how do you cope with that? Sure. And that's one
2: of the most fascinating things about this book is this great way in which that theme of autonomy Uh, runs through uh, robotic plots, it runs through the ideas of human indentured service that you also have in this book, and then also the idea of freedom from addiction or lack thereof. And so there's a lot of really interesting uh, comparative kind of ideas between uh, robotic autonomy and human autonomy. And um, so I wondered, what were some of the emerging issues like in the technological and cultural spheres that inspired you to have that sort of cross character idea of autonomy um, throughout the book?
1: I mean, there's a bunch of stuff that influenced it, but I was obviously I've been following like a lot of uh, people who write about technology and science. I've been following debates around AI and how we should treat AI and whether we should be worried that AI will kill us or should be we be worried that we're actually causing AI to suffer because we're forcing it to use recurrent learning algorithms. <laughs> um, uh, so... Um, I, I was thinking about that issue specifically, like how or what kind of relationship are we going to form with AI once it actually has human equivalent consciousness. Um, but the other thing I was thinking about a lot is just that um, as we watch the um, difference between the rich and the poor growing wider and wider globally, I really think that we're going to start seeing more examples of people being enslaved. Uh, under a different name, we of course wouldn't want to call it slavery because it's gotten such a bad rap. Um, but we've already seen um, examples in China where people are basically uh, brought in to work in factories and they live at the, on the company premises. Um, there were all of these uh, stories, you know, about a decade ago now about Foxconn and how they mistreated their workers. And basically they were enslaved. You know, they were in some cases not permitted to leave and of course, this isn't just happening in China, this is happening all over the world. And a lot of people, um, even in so-called liberated countries like the United States, feel like their work is a kind of indenture, because they don't have a choice about doing a job that they hate. Um, You know, if they don't work, um, they will literally die, because we have no social safety net. Um, And so it's, I think that that was a huge part of, of my thinking was, yeah, you know, I'm concerned about robot slaves, but I'm also concerned about how our callousness about the idea of creating AI slaves really speaks to a deeper issue of how we don't mind enslaving other people either. Um, and that's kind of what the world is like in my novel is that people are kind of telling themselves that, you know, it's not really slavery, uh, but it really is
2: well that's it's also interesting how you how you use uh the drug patent law plot and the drug addiction plot to kind of show how humans become indentured to their own minds and, and and change their own psychology in the way of um like as if they're being reprogrammed and so i thought that was a really interesting other thread that you brought in so uh the actual central drug of this is a work addiction drug essentially which i thought was extremely topical, um, given some of the points you just raised there. And so how did you decide that that was going to be sort of the pharmaceutical star of the of the novel, that this particular type of addiction would be kind of linked with the satisfaction of, of uh, task completion?
1: Yeah, I mean, um, obviously I was... Uh... Poking a little bit at a lot of um, drugs that people take now to be more productive, you know everything from like Adderall to Provigil or just plain old crystal meth. I mean, like let's get back to the '70s, man, when we had crystal meth. Um, I mean, not that we don't don't have it now, but people have like fancier names for what's basically just meth. Um, so, like you said, I mean, absolutely a big part of the pharmaceutical pirate plot deals with the fact that people are constantly reprogramming themselves with drugs. And there's lots of, you know, fun party drugs in the story. Uh, But the drug that's that's sort of wrecking havoc and and ruining people's lives is a drug that's, it's supposed to be kind of like provigil. It's something that, uh, but it's much more potent and has a lot more side effects. Um, And it's a drug that Uh, gets people addicted to work processes. So it's a a drug that is a, it's an addictive drug, but is also uh, designed to, to create process addiction. So if you're taking the drug and you're riding your bike, you'll get addicted to riding your bike. Um, If you're taking the drug and you're, you know, finishing a deadline for motherboard, you're going to get addicted to doing that. Um, And so it's a great drug for productivity and, uh, of course it has these very harmful side effects, uh, where people become so addicted to their work that they don't do anything else. And they, uh, they neglect themselves and they start becoming obsessive about finishing their work and it gets destructive.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It just, it just seemed to fit really thematically into, um, the rest of the, the novel, um, in terms of just this kind of, uh, circular, um, process. So it, it was, uh, it was a really interesting thing to be out in the broader world and, and the central drug uh, that was chosen. So it's interesting that Adderall is a, is a good analog for that, I think.
1: <laughs> well, it is. I mean, it's like, it's, I think, because for most of us, um, for most people, work is drudgery. It's not fun. Um, there's a few people that are lucky enough to have jobs like writing that can be really fun. Um, but part of, you know, I mean, that's kind of like you said, that's sort of what I'm calling attention to is that work often does feel like slavery and drudgery. And so we do everything we can to make it seem more fun. So drugs are a great way to do that. Um, And then, you know, lying to yourself is another good way to do it. (laughs) Hiring for your small
0: business. If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to
1: the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today.
2: And I wanted to bring up, I, I love the, the paladin Elias Um plot. But uh, the whole idea of this, um, of gender and how arbitrary it is for Paladin, but how important it is for Elias is really a great kind of mirror to look at some issues in our own time and everything. So uh, I wonder how you got that arc to develop. And also, it just seems like it fits into this wider spectrum of introspective gender theory that has been integrated into a lot of new science fiction. Um, And so I wonder if you see yourself as part of that, that wave of, of really trying to push these types of themes a little bit farther and answer some, some more um, modern questions with them.
1: You know, gender, um, thankfully, has become incredibly complicated, especially over the last 10 years in the West. And we're starting to be able to talk about uh, non-binary gender and thinking about gender as a spectrum instead of, a, a you know, just you're either a guy or girl. Um, and I think a lot of us kind of grew up feeling like we were somewhere on a gender spectrum and that male and female didn't really fit, um, but didn't have the language to talk about that. And um, now I think we do have the political language to talk about that, but also science fiction really helps open up a space for us to um, just imagine all kinds of permutations um, of the implications of non-binary gender. And so, I always wanted to have Paladin basically be indifferent to gender. And there's several conversations between robots where they're like, eh, gender, whatever, that's just a human thing. Humans are obsessed with it. It has to do with their sexuality, which is just so weird. Um, and But for Elias, uh, who's grown up in a uh, very conservative environment, he has a lot of internalized homophobia, um, it's deeply important. You know, for him, the gender of another person person, whether it's a robot or a biological person, you know, that can, that can be the difference for him between feeling comfortable with that person as like a potential lover or feeling like that person is absolutely off limits as a lover. It's like, he's just super, he has to see the world in that binary. And so, um, I wanted to dramatize this idea of this guy who's incredibly uptight about what gender he'll have sex with, um, and And then this robot who's like, "What? Why do you even care?" <laughs> and they manage to become friends, partly because Elias projects all this weird stuff onto Paladin, and Paladin just doesn't care. Um, and that's very different from what happens between, male and female humans on Earth right now where um, lots of women have had the experience of men projecting all kinds of weird crap onto us. And we have to care because we don't have any other choice. We can't go hang out with robots who don't notice gender, or who think gender is dumb. So it's kind of weirdly a little bit utopian in that that tiny that tiny little space in the story is kind of utopian because Elias gets to have his neurosis um, and Paladin gets to have a cute boy interested in her um and everybody kind of gets what they want even though certain people are lying to themselves <laughs> there's a couple things
2: i'd love to dig into on that um one is just like did you notice yourself writing her
1: differently once she became a her i i did think about that a lot and i think it didn't change that much for me because i knew all along that she wasn't really male or female. So the whole time I was writing her, I was like, well, you know, other people assume that he is male because he's a giant armored robot, you know, who looks like some kind of anime mecha. Um, And so they just, everyone just calls that kind of robot he. But Paladin doesn't see himself or herself that way. Um, I think, like, for me, what was really fun about it was getting to take this very butch hyper masculine kind of robot and then just call her she and and just sort of be like yeah you could be a she and look like a tank
2: yeah and and i just going back to the point also that you made in terms of um it's a utopia but there's some lying to ourselves going on i thought it was again a great parallel to have uh elias and paladins kind of story which is a little bit messed up but romantic in its own way uh, against the 3Z and Jack story, which is also a little bit messed up, and there's some there's some power imbalances in both.
1: Both of those relationships have a lot of issues around consent because um, you know, the characters, like you said, they have power imbalances. In the case of Paladin, um he or she is running programs that make her feel things that she can't control. Um in the case of 3Z and Jack, yeah, I wanted to remind the reader that this isn't just something that happens to robots, um, that, you know, you can get into a situation in the case of Jack and 3Z, a sexual situation where it's really unclear whether 3Z is consenting or not. I mean, he is consenting, but he comes, he's coming to this relationship from a place where he doesn't really believe he has any other choice the he's been indentured his whole life part of the way he has gotten power in those in his relationships with his masters is through having sex with them and we know this about him and jack sort of guesses that about him because he's very flirtatious all the time and so when he tries to have sex with her uh, or offers to have sex with her she kind of she's like she wants to because he's cute Um, but at the same time, she feels weird about it. Um, she of course makes kind of a, a, an ambivalent, ambiguous decision, (laughs) um, that I think some, some readers, some early readers of the book have told me they felt like, wow, that scene was really squicky, um, which it's supposed to be. Um, but I think she's, the thing is, is like, it's not like Jack is a bad guy. You know, she wouldn't, she doesn't like to go around having non-consensual sex. And in fact, the situation doesn't present itself as non-consensual really. So the fact that I'm having to make all these caveats about the scene, I think, is part of what's fun and interesting about writing a scene like that is inviting the reader to think about, oh, all of these weird things go into um, consent and that consent isn't just a yes or a no thing. Like someone can even seem to be offering you sex in this case. And yet maybe that's not really what they want. Maybe that's Maybe they just think that's the only thing that they can give you, um, and maybe taking that from them is actually super uncool. Or maybe it'll turn out okay, you know. But the, those are the kinds of questions that, you know, I wish people would ask themselves more often. Actually,
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's 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 very it's lots of shades of uh, of gray, for lack of a better. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's it's interesting how everybody in this book, most of the characters have a survivalist edge to them. And um, I really enjoyed your, your previous nonfiction book, Scatter, Adapt and Remember, which was uh, about humans and mass extinction and how we might uh, survive that kind of stuff. So I wondered if there were, um, how you know, how much of an influence did that process of, of bringing out that book um influence the world building and the thematic development of this novel and kind of the survivalist idea that runs through so many of these characters?
1: That's, that's a really interesting question. Um, I have, uh, in all of my work, um, or not all of my work, but in a lot of my work, I do deal with the question of survival, whether it's, uh, you know, the big kind of survival of, will our species survive, uh, the mass extinction and the climate changes that we're going through right now. Um, you know, or just these kind of personal survivals where people survive an abusive childhood or they survive an abusive work environment and manage to stay whole. I think that for me, um, hope is always connected with survival, um, which sounds a little bit like a truism. But, you know, people get hope from all kinds of things. I think people get hope from anger and people get hope from um, beauty. And um, for me, hope has always come from specifically making it through hardship by like forming friendships or forming social bonds with other people. Um, So not just sort of like hunkering down in your bunker, (laughs) but like by creating, um, you know, better social relationships or at least solid social relationships. And so that's kind of definitely throughout this novel that's really running through like a lot of the characters have had trauma um, of greater or lesser degrees um, and are trying to cope with it and trying to be good people, even though they haven't had that many examples of people being good to them. And so how do you figure that out? In some cases, um, you know, it's, it's really hard for them to figure it out. And so they're just kind of fumbling around. (laughs) Um, But I think, you know, everybody in the book does terrible things. um, But they also, I think they're all on a good path, even if they're gonna be, you know, kind of jerks along the way. Did you set
2: out to kind of have no real villain and, and, and try to embed yourself into these narratives and show why these characters are are doing what they're doing? Or did it just naturally come out that way?
1: I mean, as a reader, I love novels that are super ambiguous, where you don't really have a good guy and a bad guy and everybody is a little bit good and a little bit bad. Um, so I definitely set out to do that. When I went back and did a huge major revision, that was like the big thing that I changed was like, wait, Actually, I like these characters, and I want the reader to sympathize with them. I don't want it to just be like, let's stand here and watch them all destroy themselves and, and murder each other. Like I was like, you know, let's let's see what they do if they're a little bit more complex than that.
2: This novel is so cinematic; it has really a rich visual feel, and um, that's kind of a fun. The fun part of Three zs Evolving interest in films over the course of the story is that you get like a lot of this very, uh, you know these analogs throughout throughout the book that are uh with with films and and so i i wondered if there was like a playlist or something that you had going on that was kind of influencing the way that you pictured the settings and the characters um there's obviously the scorsese references but uh just in terms of the visuals of the book was there was there big films that you were kind of like drawing off of in that
1: um, I was definitely for for paladin um I was thinking a lot about like anime that I watched in the nineties, so like Appleseed Bubblegum crisis, which I know is very silly, but they have these great mobile suits um gundam, obviously, you know things that were these big mechs that always had like cool shit sticking out of their head and um. I was definitely thinking a lot about anime. And then for some of the other elements in the book, um, a lot of it was probably influenced by images of the cities and stuff like that. I was thinking a lot about sort of the domed cities um, on other planets um, that like NASA used to produce these amazing drawings in the 70s and 80s of like, here's how we will live on other worlds. And it was like these beautiful domed cities on Mars and things like that. So I was thinking kind of about that landscape, the landscape that we once imagined would be in space. But as the climate changes on Earth, I think it's going to be more and more common here. Uh, Definitely, that was a big part of it.
2: Yeah. And that's another, the other main thing I I just love so much. I am an Albertan, so I never expected to see like a sci-fi novel with so many references near Alberta and um, uh, just the Canadian North being such a character in this book. And there's just very rich visual uh, environments everywhere. So I wondered, did you travel at all to research the book?
1: I did travel a lot. I have um, a lot of family um, in the prairies. So I've, hung out a lot in Saskatchewan, um, especially in Saskatoon, where a lot of the uh, action takes place. So the landscape of Saskatchewan especially really influenced me. It's, it's just this, it's so beautiful there. Um, and there's just these big skies, these huge fields. Um, sometimes they're just um, natural preserves, but a lot of time, It's just these big farms that are, you know, in some cases, actually they are being monitored by satellites and they are being monitored by robots. Um, it's very high tech and the university of Saskatchewan, um, uh, in Saskatoon, where where a lot of the um, action takes place, they have an amazing, very high-tech uh, agricultural engineering program. And so I kept thinking, like, in the future, this will be like, you know, um, U of S will have, like, populated all of Saskatchewan with robots and high-tech devices for monitoring the crops. Um, so it is Canadian prairie futurism, and you will notice that like all of the kind of nice places in the book are in Canada. Um, like Vancouver is where the free bots live. Um, there's the bot neighborhood um, in the in Richmond, which is a suburb of, of Vancouver. And uh, and then all of the like most disgusting horrible cities are like you know down in the United States. <laughs>
2: Did you actually like map out uh, where you would think where climate change might be the worst and and kind of plan the geography of it that way? because it really was great to see this whole kind of different earth in twenty one forty four you know
1: actually, i I planned it a lot. Um, while I was writing the novel, I actually had a map of the Arctic, um, as my desktop background, because I kept consulting it and trying to figure out like, okay, if she left from here, how would she get here? And like, what would be the different connections? Um, I also thought about like different kinds of immigration patterns because, um, there's a, there's a sort of Persian Gulf expat community living in, um, Casablanca in North Africa, and I, w- I was like, OK, how would that work? And like, why would that have happened? And, um, and so I was just really interested in how both how the climate would change and change the geography, but also how different kinds of um, waves of immigration would change it. Um, and so that stuff to me is really fun. So I, I just wanted to imagine new, weird neighborhoods of the future um, and, uh, and what, what would be in them. Uh,
2: another theme that that I loved in the book um, and that I think was really nailed in um, one scene in which 3Z is watching Taxi Driver. And it's a movie that in this timeline is, is, you know, almost 170 years old, but he still um, can relate to it. And Jack says that, I guess, people don't change that much from century to century, which just seemed like a great uh, moment. and, And there's so much of that, idea in this book, because despite the fact that there's, you've done such a fantastic job with all of these futuristic world building tropes and everything, there's a lot of, um, historical baggage still in the story. And so I, I, guess I, it's kind of the ultimate like science fiction question for any author, but like, um, you know, how did you decide which parts of the world we're going to update and which were are going to be still kind of familiar from a 2017 vantage point?
1: Um, I mean, some of it was definitely planned in advance because um, I wanted to, I knew that the future was going to have indentured slavery in it. And so I knew that um, I wanted to kind of make a very clear connection between uh, the history of slavery uh, in the United States and, you know, current issues around uh, racism and classism and then the future where those things would have uh, kind of come full circle and we've got indentured servants again. Um, But, you know, science fiction isn't really about predicting the future. It's really just about thinking about the present um, in a speculative way. And so um, sometimes you put stuff in there partly just to make people to kind of defamiliarize what people are, are using every day. Um, and, and you're not, and I I was certainly not trying to, you know, say like, this is how the future will really be. Um, robots will be alive. (laughs) Um, I don't know if I, I really don't believe, um, you know, if I were writing like a nonfiction piece, I would definitely not, uh, suggest that we would have human equivalent artificial intelligence in 150 years. I just don't, I don't think that's very likely. Um, but it, it sure makes for a good story. (laughs)
2: Uh, what's coming down the pipeline now? You're are you, you're doing a new novel.
1: Um, I tour books, which uh, is publishing um, autonomous, bought my next novel, um, which I have not written yet. <laughs> I have uh, a lot of notes, um, and uh, so it's going to be about time travel. And um, but it, in my uh, time travel uh, rule book, um, you can only travel back in time, um, and um, it's going to be like autonomous, it's going to be very, uh, ambiguous. There's going to be a lot of characters who are many shades, many, many, many shades of gray. Um, and, uh, you know, time travel is going to be hard and, um, and weird and not, you can't go kill Hitler for a bunch of reasons that are, that I'll talk about in the book. So, um, but it is about basically these characters trying to change the present and the near future by going back in time and making making changes. Um, and it's very much about what's happening right now, where um, we're in this kind of historical crisis. And, um, you know, what we do next, I think, is also going to rewrite how we remember history. So I think, um, you know, every big change, um, it, it echoes up and down the timeline. You know, you change the future, but then you also um you know, the past looks really different once you've turned a corner. So that's that's kind of the weird stuff I'm thinking about right now. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I'm really excited to read that one too. And um, I thank you so much for for uh, taking the time to talk to us about Autonomous and um, everyone should pick it up. It's a really, really fun book. So thank you, Annalie.
0: Thanks so much for joining us on this episode of Radio Motherboard. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Special thanks to our reporter Becky Ferreira and Annalie Newitz for joining us on the show. This week's episode was edited and produced by Sophie Casis. See you next week.